Network Automation Nerds podcast. Hello and welcome to Network Automation Nerds podcast, a podcast about network automation, network engineering, Python, and other technology topics. I'm your host, Eric Cho. Today on the show, we'll be talking to Andy Champagne, SVP and CTO at Akamai Labs. Andy has been in the industry since the early 1990s. The early work focused on network engineering and architectural for regional ISPs. Since joining Akamai in the 2000s, Andy has held a variety of engineering and leadership roles. In part one of this episode, we talked to Andy about his origin story, how he got into network engineering, and some of his value leadership principles. Let's dive right in. Welcome. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm flattered to be here. Yeah. So Andy, before we you know, talk about your experience at Akamai and your leadership roles, your leadership philosophies, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into technology, your origin story? Yeah, the origin story. Ooh, that's always a dangerous <laughs> one. But, you know, I was one of those kids and, and I kind of, you know, grew up in an interesting time, right? Like the 80s, which was such a transition period from like, you know, really, you know, vacuum tubes were on the way out and, uh, you know, microprocessors and such were on the way in and transistors were on the way in. And, uh, you know, so I spent a ton of my youth, you know, really working with my, my grandparents, right? One of whom was a machinist. So mm-hmm. like a big appreciation for precision and like craftsmanship. And then uh, my other grandfather who was like into a, like electronics repair. Mm. And so, you know, I spent my formative years, you know, kind of working with old technology for play, right? Like, you know, putting together Heath kits and like, you know, building multimeters and, and the kind of stuff that, you know, you get that today, it gets back, yeah. but it was that yeah. like vintage experience um, of, you know, like dealing with vacuum tubes and, and Heath kits and soldering stuff. So, you know, I grew up with, really just an affinity for electronics. And that's really where it started for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, subsequently, uh, you know, obviously computers became a bigger and bigger thing. Right. And, you know, when I found out about the internet, right, you know, it was it was just like, oh my gosh. And it's like, it takes this relevancy that used to be a single thing that you had, like an electronic circuit, and it just abstracted it to a worldwide layer. So that's dense. And like, let's jump into that and happy to unpack more of that. But for me, it was, you know, I was the kid who took apart the VCR and then put it back together and kind of those things built rockets and, and that kind of <laughs> stuff. So I've just always been fascinated uh, with technology and more specifically, like how things work yeah. and how you can make them better. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I remember I wasn't one of those kids. Right? <laughs> I'm always afraid to to break things, and um, and therefore I didn't have the exposure. I'll tell you a, a story, right? Like when I was in college, um, you know how easy it is to change RAMs in in computers. It basically is just like a thirty second thing. But I was so afraid of breaking it because I was sharing a computer with my sister. So I actually, I went to Best Buy and then <laughs> the guy was busy, but I needed to have it done. So I was like walking around, waiting for like an hour for them to do like a 30, 30 second thing. But um, luckily I asked the guy, I say, hey, if, can, I, can I just observe how you do it? This black magic of, you know, upgrading my RAM. And uh, he's like, yeah, no problem. So I just saw it and I saw how easy it was. And then I, I realized that... Uh, exposure is really like a key to a lot of our knowledge, right? You, you can't be afraid to break things in order to understand them. And that's a luxury a lot of people don't have. It's just, you know, like the, the, uh, the ability to break things and not get blamed for it. So I'm, I'm super ha- happy to see that you had that exposure in such a young age. 
That that's awesome. And to be clear, like I would get like a, a TV would come in, or my grandfather had some electronics that he was repairing, and it would be unsavable. And then <laughs> I then I would get all the boards out of that, right? And all the yeah. boards out of that had umpteen. Uh, you know, great components on them. So, you know, many a capacitor was exploded, you know, resistors, you know, just so, so it was, you know, I had a really good flow of what I would, you know, it's largely considered junk or e-waste today, but back then it was just like, Hey, here, you know, play with this. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes. And to your point about dims or, or anything like that, or even, you know, processor, like, you know, insertion slots, like the first time doing that is terrifying because you have mm-hmm. to push it so hard that it almost breaks. You feel right. like it's going to break and right. then it doesn't. And that's just like, you have to get the confidence in the engineering of, oh, it's built to do this and I can take it out and put it back in and it's all good. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think more and more guardrails were built in. So like the little click sound or, you know, the kind of force that you can't really describe until you experience it. But um, yeah, I, I think just, it's just the exposure, right? Like people need to tinker around with stuff. And that is why for my for my daughters, you know, I give them these kids that are easy to tinker with. And I don't know if you heard a little bits, but those are like little servos, little, and you don't need to solder them. You just kind of magnetically attach them together. And it's just pretty awesome. Yeah. So it, it, relevancy there. So I have an eight-year-old daughter too. And uh, we have these, they're called snap circuits, which is like yeah. a similar thing. And they like yeah. pop together. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're all about that. And she has done, we've done some soldering projects as well, because that's important to learn. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, you know, a general theme that I think is super important to me and that if I'm not playing, I'm not happy. Yeah. And you know, what, what, whatever I'm working on, and it is imperative to me that it's fun and that it's interesting. And, you know, you're not always going to get that 100% of the time. But for right. me, like my balance is saying, hey, am I having fun? Am I learning something new? And am I, am I playing with the technology or with something? Because that's when you end up being able to do something interesting, right? Like if you sit right. down and try to just say, okay, I'm going to think really hard, that doesn't work. You have to experiment, try things, whether it's software, hardware, uh, you know, playing with it is, you know, setting up a lab for yourself if you can and having, you know, whether it's routers to work with or software, virtual machines, whatever, you know, containers, just playing with technology is the pathway for it. And frankly, like, 98% of my technology learning comes from play. <laughs> I, I think um, I think you drive a good point about uh, technology and playing. And I imagine that's kind of what you do at, I mean, just from the surface on Akamite Labs, right? Because it has the labs in it. And inherently, you think of research, development, and just playing around with different technology. Is that the correct uh, presumption? I, I wish I could say yes, you know, and, and I think, uh, I, you know, there's, there's a large aspect of that, right, which a big part of, you know, my role at Akamai is to talk, to, is to play with things and try to figure out where we should go right. from a high level strategic direction and, and working with Bobby, my boss, uh, our CTO and, and Tom, our CEO and uh, our different kind of executives on where we want to go. But, you know, there's also, there's a lot of corporate, right? And that's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, we're a big company, 10,000 odd people, roughly. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of process in corporate, but I think what I really enjoy about my role and, and where I think I bring some differentiation in is that notion of play. And I'm, I'm serious, but I also think it's like, well, we're doing this because we're having fun, right? We're not doing this because this is like, you know, it, we're doing this because it's fun and interesting and we're building something kind of net new and mm-hmm. we're doing something in a unique way. So yeah, it, it's not all, uh, you know, kind of coasting around on segues, like looking at interesting, like, you know, we're, we're dealing with projects, we're dealing with timelines. But we're also dealing, 
you know, with a, a company that has, you know, grown in, we're coming up on our 25 year anniversary. So the company is going to be 25 years old, you know, from zero to, you know, three, three and a half ish billion dollars of revenue. Uh, wow. and, and it's been an amazing story. So, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's not all play. It's not all fun, but that keeping that element of play is what makes it, I think, workable and fun and engaging over the long term. How do you find the balance though? Because I am actually in research and development as well at A10 in my day job. And um, it's always uh, kind of uh, kind of difficult to find the balance really because you're essentially a cost center and you're trying to find that direct link between your the results into customer signing a PO. So you can like, kind of justify your existence. But um, how do you find the balance, Andy? So I think there's always a tension there. Yeah, right. I, I I haven't talked to anybody. As I talk to peers or folks at different organizations, I I haven't found anybody who's got it all licked. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is companies love to do a global prioritization, mm-hmm. meaning saying, hey, for and this isn't an Akamai comment. It's generally, hey, say for you know, sure. we have the following five top priorities, and I think that you have to actually think in multiple categories, which is we're going to have product priorities, we're going to have. Uh, optimization priorities, and we're going to have R and D priorities. And listen, I mean, if if R and D is inexorably linked to selling something like near term, mm-hmm. that's probably not going to set R and D up for a lot of success because you're beholden to a customer feature, right? So you know, a little bit of that is you know, and, and to be clear, I've done both tactical R and D, like hey, we've got to you know invent something that is going to be appealing to this specific need or this opportunity, and right. we've also done more like blue sky R and D, like hey, what about this area, and, mm-hmm. and like investigating that. And I think it's important to figure out like what mode the team is in, yeah. and then ensuring that the people around you are aligned and motivated, and everybody's okay with that because it's not right. like the same kind of people all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that because. Like you said, we're not designing the feature by committee, right? Like if, you know, if that's the case, that we just end up in that famous quote where we just end up fa- with faster horse, right? So, um, um, no, I like that. I like that. I think what you said about, uh, it's kind of like a method, right? Like you start with categorizing whether it's a a moonshot or versus it's just a, a feature that's needed by X amount of date and asked by a customer, Versus, and then that just generally from there that we, you know, kind of move from move forward with. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think one of the important things about technology management is creating space for that play, right? Which mm-hmm. is if, if it's all applied, you know, you're, you're going to get a good result on the applied, but you're kind of shortchanging your future. And you've got to mm-hmm. think about how do we play so that we kind of invent the future. And, and that's, listen, I mean, that's part of what's been awesome over the last 20 odd years. <laughs> yeah, so I, I want to dive that into a little bit when you talk about that's part of the technology management and leadership. So can you just tell me a little bit about what do you what does that mean to you, like leadership and technology management or uh, even R&D? Yeah, so I would say I I am an atypical, like I, a, atypical manager, right, which is okay. I, I am very much not a micromanager. I'm very much about, you know, we're all on adult in air quote rules, which is, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting folks to put in really good effort, but I, I'm really here to help my team. And I, I look at this like this, these aren't the people that work for me. These are the people that work with me. Right. And, mm-hmm. and my job, you know, is, is sometimes coach, sometimes architect, technology reviewer, sometimes like therapist with, you know, workplace disputes and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, you know, the goal is to enable people and finding the the real challenge is finding the right people and getting Mm -hmm. people who are passionate about what we're working on. Because I think the result is 
you know, we need people who, who, who want more than a job, right? Yeah. In technology, yeah. you have to bring an external passion into the role uh, yeah. to really be successful. And I think that's, you know, frankly, once you find a team of, you know, a players who has that similar alignment, the rest is kind of goes on its own. <laughs> I like that. Um, so I, I'm my apology because we I, I just we, we kind of led this you know conversation into um, you know kind of naturally flow, but I realized that people might not know uh, what Akamite does because a lot of times it's behind the scenes, right? Although I think most of our audience is network network engineer networking background, so they may know. But um, but in just brief overview, can you tell us what does Akamite do and yeah, sure. uh, what are their strengths? Yeah, sure. So Akamai is uh, effectively today a global cloud and cloud security company. Okay. So we operate a very large distributed network. So we have on the order of 300, 350,000 servers that are deployed around the world in thousands of different locations. Right. And uh, we run a software stack on these servers that provides essentially a, a, an assortment of SaaS services to our customers. Mm -hmm. um, some of those services are uh, distributed security services, so web application firewall type services where, you know, we're effectively front ending your website and filtering for threats that are inbound and ensuring that, you know, the bad folks don't get through. Uh, yeah. We have a, and the kind of classically what we're known for is our content delivery business, right. where we are delivering content out to end users. And, you know, the core premise of Akamai, which was really the precipice for Akamai's uh, in invention back in the late 90s, was this notion that you know the internet needed to be distributed, and if you tried right. to serve content from one spot, it wasn't really working well. And you know, in the late '90s, big websites of the time had huge scaling challenges, and they were trying to buy bigger and bigger servers. And uh, you know, Dr. Tom Layton, our co-founder, you know, really had this invention, uh, which was, hey, we're going to take it and smash it into a thousand pieces and distribute it, and we're going to map right. users so that when you know, I'm in Massachusetts and I'm going to an asset, I'm going to get directed to an Akamai server that is very close to me and yeah. I'm going to get the content from there. Uh, so that the CDN business is kind of what we're known for. And then most recently, uh, a little bit over a little bit under a year now, we acquired Linode, which is a cloud computing provider. So we also have compute in our portfolio now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more to that. I could talk about Akamai and kind of what it is for probably more than an hour, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing company. We're headquartered here in Massachusetts and, uh, you know, we're just about at our 25th year anniversary. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So for me, um, I was one of the uh, original team members to launch uh, CloudFront for AWS. So, I mean, back then Akamai, Akamai still is uh, the dominant player in CDN, right? But we were very aware of, you know, the presence of Akamai and, um, Limelights and you know a, a few other major players around the globe uh, that does CDN, but I think you're right about um, you know Akamai branching out and you know the the premise is not just CDN, right? Like CDN is kind of one of the application of that ideology of smashing the internet into uh, different pieces that are closer to the user, so you could serve them better. Yeah, exactly. That's what we you know that's what we started out with in the in the very late nineties. And, and back then, you know, our competitors were boxes, you know, it was yeah. inked, ink to me. And, and, and these, you know, we were literally competing with people selling caching boxes that you would take and put yes, in your data center. I remember that. And, yeah. And, and, you know, we were a service and, and just, this was before people sold services. So we would go right. in to sell something and we were actually displacing a hardware purchase 
where you know folks were going to buy more iron and put it in an uh, Exodus data center at the time or, or whatever. Right. And and you know we had a service based approach. And uh, you know to to kind of resonate with the network geek side. So uh, you know I stuck because I'm, I'm supposed to be this is supposed to be my origin story. So I'll back into that a little more. <laughs> sure. You know, so my background prior to Akamai's, I was in the ISP space and I was oh, nice. essentially, yeah, network engineering. Right. So, you know, I cut my teeth in the mid mid nineties, essentially, you know, running backbones for what I'd say is regional internet service providers. Back then, back then the ISP landscape was much more diverse. You right. had a lot of kind of local ISPs. Most access was dial-up. Businesses had T1s or, or maybe a fractional T3. Many of your viewers and listeners probably don't even know what those things are, but essentially <laughs> like old, like, private line facilities that would be I, run I from your... For the life. record, I Thank do. you. <laughs> That's good. No, and, and listen, so, like, I literally cut my teeth like configuring Cisco 2501s and, and VXRs and, and kind of things of that era uh, running an ISP. And, and you know, Akamai which, you know, was just this amazing thing because from a network perspective, so many of the things that you were fighting with around traffic engineering and around making efficient use of capacity and trying to improve user performance, you know, which we would, in the network side, you'd try to do, okay, we need more peering and we need to have better, you need to be better peered. We need a better upstream. We need to multi-home and all these different solutions. You know, Akamai had this approach, which now looking back on it was like the SDN version where it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's not just a network, it's actually software. So, you know, I, I ended up through the ISP community joining Akamai on the network side. So I started mm-hmm. on the network side at Akamai and, you know, that was just a, an awesome experience and just, uh, just such a fun move to make and such a, such a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I joined the, the network community probably around the same time as you, Andy, because um, my, my first installation was go out to the site and install DSLs, right? Like, remember, we're like, we're at local ISP reselling DSLs and, um, and so on and so forth. And back to what you were talking about, um, uh, like, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You're absolutely right, right? Like, I was building out the regional uh, network for Roadrunner, which is, you know, cable modems. So um, one of the first questions we did was capacity planning. And essentially, we're, we're playing with the, the Mother's Day issue, right? Like, the biggest day of the peak, we're, we're banking on people smoothing out our curve as far as usage, and um, and if everybody starts to use it at the max capacity, like streaming a movie, then um, we will come into we'll we'll becoming uh, there'll be a problem with the bandwidth consumptions, and that's where the CDNs comes in. And from the network side, as you alluded to, that uh, that could smooth out that that curve for us because it's lo- locally originated. You just have to fetch the origin the first time. Yeah, exactly. And you're 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 shifting the bottleneck from what used to be a transit bottleneck, right? Which is right. how do I get out to bring those content in? And you had this terrible multiplication issue, which is if there's actually a live event that you know my that the majority of my subscribers wanted to watch, my right. network's going to collapse. And, and Akamai and, and other, you know, obviously with other technologies as well, shifted that by saying, hey, we're going to pull the content in once and then we're going right. to replicate it out inside the network where you're dealing with, you know, at the time it might've been token ring or, or maybe fast <laughs> ethernet, but you know, you'd be dealing with other topologies uh, that have a lot more headroom at the time than you might've on your T3 or, you know, OC3 backbone link, whatever you had at the time. Yeah. So I watched Thursday night football last night and, uh, you know, I'm still amazed that, uh, like you said, right. It's, it's, it's not something you could readily cash ahead of time, but you have to do that real time buffering and, and calculate those, those bandwidth. So obviously, Andy, you had a lot of background in network engineering, just regional. 
uh, ISPs into, you know, kind of distributed network and having a software play. And, and, you know, this was before Salesforce, right? Like, so people are not used to having subscription-based service. They're used to just buying big boxes. Like, um, I forget what those call that. Are they called like bandwidth optimizer or like, you know? Yeah. Like there's those, like basically it was like, you know, they were caching type boxes, like a squid type function. I know what you're talking. I can't remember the name because it was a like cash flow and it was yeah. a bunch of different. Yeah. And also like compressing your TCP. And then they start playing with some weird stuff, right? Like they start like saying, hey, do we really need this header? <laughs> but maybe not, right? Like maybe we just have like an extension. So we would go from like 16 bits to four bits. And that just becomes so weird and proprietary that you have to sandwich between them. And it just becomes such a nightmare to troubleshoot because they're doing some proprietary uh, technology stuff. And so uh, it's non-standard and uh, that ultimately proved that it doesn't work right you, you have to play nice with each other <laughs> or um you know people might disagree but that, that's my yeah, opinion no, anyways transparent proxies so just to be clear i mean i ran in the isp regime i ran transparent proxies at the time right. and it's just a nightmare because it's this this box which has its own interpretation of how the standards should work and you know you would find all these random applications that it would break uh, you know, outside of corporate environments, those aren't really a thing today, right? Today, yeah. you've got like, you know, SWGs in the in the corporate environment, which is kind of analogous to it. But outside of that, I mean, that's that's not really something that you see a lot of today uh, because it's just, I think it gets in the way. And if you think about like the protocol complexity behind Chrome, right? And what is it actually talking? Is it quick? And is it HTTPS? And how's it working? And, it, you know, I mean, essentially today, everything's encrypted, right? So there's a whole other issue there where that doesn't, that kind of topology is not as effective today. Yeah. So I want to kind of dive into what you were talking about, because obviously you were a very engineering centric, very deep technology background, but then you made the transition into management, being a leader, uh, you know, leading different types of groups. So how many, for people who are interested in doing the same, you know, maybe they're at a, uh, thinking about going to management or they're thinking about uh, being a lead in you know, the technical or project lead. What are some of the, the transition you have done and what kind of advices can you give them? Awesome question. So I think the the first one is, you know, to me, that first jump that I remember is when you become a, a team lead, right? Which right. is you, you, right. you kind of have that quasi management responsibility. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that is, I think, probably one of the most important inflection points. And I think there's a second one that I'll probably talk about as well. But that notion that your work is not just about you anymore. And, you know, your work is <laughs> about conducting the work of others. And, and frankly, yeah. you know, you got to figure out if you want to do that because it's, it's, it's a choice yeah. that you're making to say that your technical, like, you know, you're not coming up with the answer. You're supporting other people to come up with the answer. And that's right. a, like that not everybody wants to do that. And that's fine. Um, you know, and that you can blend it and obviously you put input in, et cetera, but you know, your, your job essentially transfers to empowering others instead of empowering yourself. Right. And you have to look right. at like, like your success is less and less about you and more about more and more about your team. And, right. you know, I think it's a great, that was obviously honestly like one of the most fun positions because team lead is like, you can get your kind of get your feet wet. You can try it out, but you're not, you know, you don't have quite all the responsibility. <laughs> you're um, not writing performance reviews, right? You're not exactly setting you know, right, KPIs is, for the quarter. Which, I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're important, but they don't count as fun, right? They don't count as right. play. That's kind of the yeah. bureaucratic side of running a business or running an organization. It's exceptionally important, but it also kind of has that killing your soul feeling, 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you, you, uh, go ahead. I was going to say the the second one I think is when you, if you, you know, kind of, if you like being a team lead and you move up and, you know, eventually you're a manager and then you, maybe you're a senior manager. And then it, it, I'm going by like Akamai's like chart, then you'd go to like director. And, yeah. you know, when you go from manager or senior manager to director, I think that's the next most important one. And, and the rationale is you no longer personally know everyone in your team. <laughs> mm. Like when you're a team lead, you have a club. You might have right. five to five, six, seven people. You know everybody. If you're in an office environment, you're all sitting around one, you know, one area. If you're remote, you're all in the same Slack space and you can just chat back and forth. You know everybody. You know kind of you know how to not offend everybody personally. Like you have a person. No, but you know, like, well, you know, I want to be here's how here's the kind of things I probably want to focus on. And you have like that personal kind of connection with everybody when you go to director or something and you might have like let's say you have like 50 people 75 people yeah you lose that ability to say i know everyone and i know how everyone will react to what i'm going to say so Mm -hmm. you then have to like like check yourself a lot more and it doesn't mean you know first of all my number one feedback is always be authentic you cannot pretend to be someone else it will kill you on the inside so you have to be yourself um but is when you have that, you also just have to be cognizant that I don't know all these people like personally anymore. I I don't just have one Slack space where I can chat with everybody and more people are going to want to meet with me and we're going to need to talk about how do we progress people through the organization. So those are the two points that I think, uh, you know, get really interesting, which is team lead. And then when you get to director and, you know, for me, both of those roles were like super fun, but honestly, I'm lucky because we had just great people at Akamai. So it's just like an awesome canvas to work with. Yeah, I'm interested in hearing about. I'm kind of personally in that same. Uh, I'm kind of uh, in the in the first group that you were talking about, where you know, kind of a, a driving the the team lead position, driving some of the initiatives, and but I don't have to write the the KPIs and the the business, the reviews, um, personal reviews. But um, but I haven't gotten into the the director level where you know I I don't have a personal touch. Like it's it, it's almost like you lose the pulse. Of, of the business, uh, as you were, as you were saying, if I get it correct. So what are some of the things that help you in making that transition? I, I think that's a big jump, isn't it? Like the, what you were saying, you start not personally knowing all of your team members. Yeah, I, I think it is a big jump, but I, I would follow with management. It is just like software, which is just an abstraction layer. And you have to be comfortable with your abstraction layer. And so when you get to director, senior director, vice president, all of a sudden, like the critical thing is, who are the team leads? Yeah. How do you how do you get to the point where you have the con- so uh, when you are a team lead, you intimately know everybody in your group and you have yes. kind of that personal connection with them. When you are a director, you need to have that same relationship with your managers. Mm-hmm. And you really want to make sure that like your managers are culturally like that everybody's getting the same message about the company. Like you don't want to create like two or three versions of the company. You want to make everybody's <laughs> got to be going in the same direction with kind of the same same vision for where it's going to go and, and what you're building from a technology stack. And candidly, you got to meet with people a lot, right? And like, you got to do a lot of one-on-ones. And the other thing is like, I love, uh, I love like town hall Q&A meetings, mm. which is, there is, and it's one of the reasons I like podcasts. It's like, there's nothing easier for me than I'm going to sit down and we're going to talk about whatever you, questions for an hour. 
and you mm-hmm. ask me the t- ask me the tough ones. Ask me why raises are only X percent instead of Y percent. Like, and I'm I'm going to give you the best answer I can. You're not always going to like it, and yeah. just be authentic and just allow people access. Don't you you can't. I, I'm I'm a little bit of an introvert, right? I'll say that, which is like it, it is my general tendency is I want to be left to work alone. However. When I find myself with a group of people who love technology and are passionate about where we're going, I really feel differently. And it's like, then it's like, hey, let's talk about it. What are you having for problems with your project? Help me to understand why you're behind in this, you know, this, this, you know, march towards production that you're going down. And, and how can I help with that? And where do we go? Do we need more resources? So, you know, you've got to be one of those people where I think you're energized about the technology. And I think it's okay if you're kind of more on the introvert side, but you have to be really passionate about tech and you have to be able to translate that to being passionate about talking with people. And, uh, you know, especially today, you know, Akamai prior to COVID was vastly mostly in person. Mm-hmm. Now we're vastly mostly remote mm. and kind of hybrid. And we, we've stayed in that model. And, you know, the communication is still as important, if, if not more. Because you you have to get in front of people regularly. So, you know, today I have a luxury where my te- my direct team is small, but like the matrix team that I work out with in the company is is just we got ten thousand people in the company, so it's it's a lot of folks. And you know, I spend so much of my day is just keeping chatting with folks on, you know, our internal chat stuff. Uh, email email is probably the worst mechanism right at this point for I'm just saying for like communication. <laughs> and you know, a lot of it is that like, hey, you know, I'm just chatting with somebody while I'm doing a walk with an AirPod and, and just, you know, you've got to be really willing to put the effort in around communication. All right. That was part one of our conversation. I hope that was useful. Don't forget to tune in next week for part two, where we talk more about leading with authenticity and also the direction of network connectivity in the future. See you then. Thank you for listening to Network Automation Nerds Podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other major podcast platforms. Until next time, bye-bye.